Good evening. Um, my name is Yuan Lin, and I'm a co-director here at the IMA together with Aileen Burns. Um, we have a very special evening ahead of us. But before that, I just want to, like we do traditionally here at the IMA, recognize the traditional owners of the land on which we gather, the Turbal and Yagra people, and their elders, um, past, present, and emerging community leaders. And I would like to extend, especially today, um, my respect to all uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here tonight. Artist Gordon Hookie, who is sitting down already quite comfortably. Um, not as comfortably as in your own chair that you brought in. Have been very busy in the past few months um, starting a quite an ambitious, well, a life's works as you described it, which we see the beginning of the genesis of Murrayland, which is um, a work that is going to keep expanding and um, uh, extending both here in Brisbane, but also um, overseas um, in the next few years. And it's the history of Queensland from Gordon's perspective, from a very particular indigenous perspective, but also trying to tell the story of the world from this very special place, Queensland. Um, so Gordon will have a conversation with Michael Aird, who's uh, for the past um, 30 years have been a very um, a key contributor when it comes to um, questions around Aboriginal art and um, cultural heritage, and has curated numerous exhibitions, um, written academic papers, and published, been a very active publisher, also through his own publishing house, and is currently the research fellow at the School of uh, Social Science at the University of Queensland. Um, this is going to be, I'm sure, really, this is going to be a highlight for this show, which is a show uh, called Frontier Imaginaries that was conceived by uh, IMA's curatorial fellow, Vivian Sahurl. And it's a show that, um, like the project as a whole, which is very expansive and thinking about kind of contemporary notions of borders and frontiers, it's a show in two parts. So it's at the Univer um, University of um, Queensland University of Technology Art Museum. Uh, at Gardens Point and also here at the IMA. Um, and I just want to highlight uh, another public program in two weeks' time as well. Uh, Swedish film director Sara Judena is coming out, who's premiering a documentary at the uh, Sydney Film Festival, which is going to be speaking about on June the, um, 14th. But this is very, it's going to be quite conversational and, and uh, open ended, and I think. Uh, Gordon and Michael has said that if somebody has questions, there'll be this roving mic that you can kind of just lift your hand and you can ask a question and kind of interject in their conversation. Um, so just give a, a hand of applause to Michael and Gordon and can begin that. Where do we start? It's like, where do we start? <laughs> uh, I, I guess a good start would be um, this particular show, uh, Frontier Imaginaires. Uh, and I'm just one of the artists in the program, in the project, I guess. Uh, and, and it's because of this work here. Uh, when I was approached to do a work for the show, um, it was by Vivian Zahurl, um, who's the IMA fellow here. And um, yeah, she commissioned me to do this work, uh, largely because she was um, 
I guess she said, yeah, she was a fan of my work, so that's uh, a, a start. But also, I think she was inspired by um, Shibumba Matula's work, whose uh, painting is of the history of the Congo, uh, you know, from, from his perspective, or, or he saw himself as a historian. But yeah, she was taken by his work and then uh, saw a similarity and then uh, commissioned me to paint the history of, uh, of Queensland. Uh, now, the, the resource or, or the main reference point is that book that's sitting there, like, uh, you know, enshrined in front of you is there. Um, and that book was by Johannes Fabian. Uh, he was a, a professor working at the University of Zaire and he was driving home one day and he saw this African artist carrying about six, seven, eight paintings under his arms and he pulled up and uh, asked to look at some of the paintings and, uh, you know, and he looked at the paintings and bought two on the spot and arranged subsequent meetings and in those meetings it came about that uh, that Shibumba saw himself as a historian um, and, uh, and convinced um, uh, you know, Professor Fabian uh, you know, to commission him to paint the history of Congo. And uh, you know, the Johannes Fabian only had four months left in the Congo, so uh, Shibumba Mutula painted 101 paintings in four months. And um, yeah, and you know, uh, Professor Fadiman had those works for a number of years and then, yeah, sold them to the, uh, uh, um, the, the, the Museum of the Tropics in Amsterdam and I think that's where Vivian came across the works and, um, yeah, and then got me, you know, commissioned me to do it but also I went over there to see the works then also visit um, Professor Fabian as well, so, so yeah, yeah. So this project came about by me using that uh, performer, I guess, uh, as a stencil, yeah, use, you know, to, to do this. And um, I think one of the main concepts that uh, I, I think Vivian, um, you know, saw as a thread, you know, through my work and Shibumba's work, but also a lot of the work here was that, that notion or concept of the frontier. So I, I thought that might be a, a good way just to start a, a little bit of a yarn with, um, with Mick, Michael and, and uh, you guys as well, because you know I, I do see my work at being on a frontier, but it's not a frontier as such, where there's uh, two forces and uh, you know a sandbag or a, or, or a territory or you know and and you've got that the clash but uh, you know my frontier uh, is is kind of a um, a well well guess what, uh, the way I describe my work as uh, being at the interface where Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal cultures converge and and I make art on that in interface so in a sense that's kind of the frontier. That, that, that I work in and uh, you know the work that I was doing was, was about uh, um, things as they happened, as they unfold and, and I would do a picture about it and um, you know like now but then someone said to me oh Gordy five years from now that'll be you know that'll be a history painting and uh, so in a sense you know looking at this work going back in time researching and then doing a picture 
of, or concocting a scenario about something that happened. You know, it, it's, it's sort of commonplace, commonplace to what I was doing anyway, yeah. But yeah, that notion of the frontier exists, I think, in, in all my work because of that, that interface where I operate on. But uh, Mick mentioned that, uh, you know, the, it's, a, it's an abstract thing, I think, for me and um, subjective, someone else said. Uh, but uh, you mentioned something about uh, the frontier in its purest form, uh, you know, uh, could be seen, I suppose, uh, in the early years or uh, of colonisation in this area here, eh? Yeah. Yep. I guess that's the main reason I'm here, is from a history point of view to talk about what, it, what is the frontier. But I've got to start by saying that 1987, I had the biggest break of my life. I got accepted into University of Queensland and turned up to start studying. And one of the first people I met was Gordon. So we both started the University of Queensland at the same time. He'd just moved down from Mount, was it Mount Concurry, Isa? Concurry, 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 yeah. Mount Isa. And, um, and Gordon was a slightly different person. He was a lot slimmer. He was there. <laughs> <laughs> He was there to study physical education. He wanted to be a PE teacher. He was into health and fitness. He was a bit conservative in some ways, coming from, from the wild west of the North Queensland, where it wasn't, you know, as he said, he said, I wouldn't go to a pub, you know, with all my uncles and stuff wearing an Aboriginal flag on it. That'd just be, you know, my uncles, well, you know, wouldn't like that, you know. So, so he came from this conservative background. But one thing, and he wasn't an artist, but he used to always say he wanted to be an artist. He always yeah. just talk about art all the time, um, but he was wasn't there to wasn't in Brisbane to be an artist. And then um, then I didn't see him for a few years, and he he's an artist, <laughs> and, he's, <laughs> and he's a bit rounder. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> <laughs> and he's very radical. So so yeah, so it's wonderful to be back, you know, sitting here after what almost thirty years. Um, so. Yeah, and for me, you know, 1987, that was it. I, I decided I wanted to work with, with Aboriginal history and culture, and that's pretty much what I've done ever since. And so from that perspective, um, you know, I look back, and particularly from my own family's perspective, it's my great, greatest interest is, is what, is, what, what have my parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents sort of lived through? And, um, and, I, and so... So, so one of my main, you know, areas of study has been the Brisbane, Gold Coast, Moreton Bay region, and 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 if you look at it from when Europeans first arrived, you know, the very first Europeans didn't really get here till the 1820s, um, then, and then to the Gold Coast, you know, they didn't really start spreading out of in any in any sort of numbers, really only very small numbers, say by the 1850s, and the 1850s is what I call the frontier. That's when, you know, so 1840s, was, you know, was the very first cattle and sheep getting taken up to places, the outer, outer regions, up to, say, Woodford. So we're talking mid-1840s. Woodford, which is only 70 kilometres to the north of us, was the, one of the most northerly European outposts in all of Australia. Um, and you've got the Archer brothers up there trying to run sheep. Um, the Gold Coast, 1850s, the, the very first cattle leases were getting given out. And they were big, like the whole Gold Coast, the whole Logan to the Tweed was one cattle lease given out in the late 1850s. And those big 
cattle leases were basically getting given to to the aristocratic Europeans, the aristocratic essentially essentially English. And it wasn't just English, there was Scottish and Irish and Swedish and other people involved, but essentially the, the aristocratic English. And they were money hungry, land hungry, in some ways bloodthirsty people. They were prepared to kill to get that land. They were privileged people, they came from England and they had wealth and power they were the people that started the first government in Queensland. They were the people that could contract a militia to protect their financial interests. And we know about the native police. You know, it was these aristocratic people who put that together. But in many ways, the, what we, we, Gordon and I have been calling the pure frontier, or this sort of tr very easy to define frontier, in, in, in some areas of Australia was fairly short-lived. So, so it definitely existed in the 1850s around in this area. Um, there was some ruthless stuff happening. And I think these aristocratic people, privileged people, wanted the lower class, English, Irish, Scottish and others to come and be the working class and set up, you know, little cottages on their big land holdings and work for them just like it had worked in, in England for, for thousands of years. And, and I think it's, I guess this is a, it was the beginning of the great Australian homeowning dream. You know, these people had spent all that time on a ship and they weren't going to live in a little cottage and be servants to the aristocrats. So they started, I think as soon as they arrived, started lobbying for their own land. And that's where these massive, so look at the, you know, Logan, Bedesert, you know, Beanley, Bedesert, Tweed, you know, one land holding in the 1850s. Um, and there was enough of this second wave of what I call essentially a second wave of migrants dominated by, it, without being horrible, you know, lower class English, Irish and Scottish people and, and other races and other European races coming in and of course Chinese and a few other, um, other races as well coming in at that time. Was that during the gold rush as well? Wasn't no, it? not so much, yeah. The, yeah we're, naturally, yeah. wherever in Queensland the gold rush came, Chinese and yeah. lots more people, but just essentially this area, South East Queensland, prior to gold rushes. Prior, OK. Prior, not yeah. really, yeah, gold rushes speeds everything up. Yeah. Um, but, so you've got this movement of other people coming in, and with this second wave of people, and of course you've got, in the very early days, you've got timber cutters coming in. The timber cutters weren't aristocratic people. They had, they weren't well resourced, they were just, you know, essentially young, uneducated, hard-working UK people that just wanted to chop down trees and earn some money. And they, again, they weren't, they weren't resourced like the aristocratic, wealthy people. And they were dependent on Aboriginal people. They, you imagine these young people from England, you know, the, the, the rainforests of northern New South Wales and South East Queensland, it's a foreign environment, a harsh environment. They would never have survived without Aboriginal people guiding them, Aboriginal people helping them with resources, Aboriginal people showing them where the big trees were, Aboriginal people helping them with labour. So, again, that's sort of that lower class... Um, you know, they were prepared to make compromises, they were prepared to work with Aboriginal people. Yet the aristocratic people weren't into compromise. If Aboriginal people got in the way, they would shoot them. Um, and they didn't see a need, you know, they didn't see a need for Aboriginal labour so much. They were happy with the lower class 
English and Irish and Scottish coming in to work for them. But those land holdings were broken up. And so by the end of the 1860s, these other, this next wave of migrants were getting, you know, 100, 100, 100 acre, 300 acre lots, or getting multiple 100 acre, acre little lots. And they were setting up dairy farms and trying to grow cotton and sugar and whatever, our route. And, and those sort of industries. And of course, you've got on the bay, you know, fishing industries and oystering and, um, and so, and the whole maritime industry, there was employment there. So, so with the second wave of people came not really well, not incredibly well-educated people, people with some education, school teachers, doctors, lawyers, police, I'm um, not saying all police were perfectly honest or, you know, so I'm not saying it was a perfect ideal world where everything was, there was this great social conscience, but there was a degree with that, with those educated and with, you know, there was a degree of social conscience. You've got journalists, you've got people that have got the ability to write letters back to England and complain about injustices that are happening here. So there was some, so yeah, so there was a sort of shift in power where it wasn't just these aristocratic, ruthless people running the show, that you, you had a bit of a balance where things weren't perfect for Aboriginal people, but they had a degree of agency. They could actually work, with, work find employment, stay in their own land. And, and that sort of typifies that area. So I sort of say in this area, South East Queensland, that ruthless frontier period was short-lived. But where Gordon's family comes from in the northwest, they were still shooting people into the 1920s. You know, it's because you didn't have the mass of people, you know, with the social, any sort of social conscience. It's still getting run by the big landowners, big massive cattle stations, um, using and abusing Aboriginal labour and, and not at the mercy, nobody watching what they're doing, no social conscience at all. So, and that's where we talk about, you know, the, 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 Cal the, the Battle of the Calcadoons. What was that? 1920s. You know, there's still ruthless stuff happening. 1920s in, in Cape York, Aboriginal people were getting led around by, in chains. You know, it's, there's some ruthless stuff happened in other places. Yeah. But all I can remember, uh, uh, my uncles telling me of times when, uh, when they used to just hide you know, from any white fellas because, you know, basically in their lifetime, black fellas were shot on sight. And um, even as a kid growing up, you know, like, uh, there also was a, this fear of uh, anything that, anyone that was in khaki because, you know, uh, back in those days, the cops wore, wore khaki uniform. And uh, whenever we see that, you know, we used to just run or hide. As kids, you know, we'd run, but not knowing why we're running, sort of thing, yeah, only because, you know, that kind of, uh, 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 the scenario that my uh, uncles encountered were kind of drummed in through our little minds, through, through conversation, and, and, and that in itself was, was passed on. And, um, you know, it, it comes back right from those early years, the frontier years, uh, you know, the pure frontier years, back home in Cloncurry, Mount Isa area, you know, where those uh, 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 land grabs were, were, were being, well, well, they were massive land grabs actually because there was just so much uh, uh, land up there that belonged to Aboriginal people that, um, you know, the squatocracy wanted to, to utilise, yeah. Now it's more um, mining up in that country now, I think, than, than uh, you know, than sheep and cattle. 
they want what's under the ground rather than uh, what's on top. So I think that's the theme of tonight is we're talking about, so here's me saying this, there was this short-lived um, frontier period, but has it really finished? You know, has it completely finished? Yeah, yeah. See, what, what was interesting when we had the, well, we had this conversation, you know, a couple of weeks back, and uh, it went for how long? Two hours. Two hours, yeah. <laughs> I, I, well, Michael was sitting in that chair, uh, you know, and, and I, I was sitting on the milk crate or something, and, uh, and yeah, I, I could see him nodding and yawning and stuff after, you know, two and a half hours. <laughs> but, but, you know, like, uh, uh, yeah, it kind of, um, you know, went on, didn't it? <laughs> you know, just talking about, uh, uh, about the different guises this, uh, uh, you know, frontier kind of manifested itself in. Uh, and I made reference to a painting that I'd done years ago when, um, when I was in Sydney, just out of art college, and I was in a studio uh, in Chippendale. Sounds like trippers, hey? but um, it's a suburb there. Nothing to do with the dancers, but uh, yeah, uh, I had a studio on the sixth floor and the window kind of looked towards um, the block or Redfern and there were the TNT towers there, which was kind of the heart of, of Redfern and then some of the queries were telling me that uh, that um, the police rented uh, a floor right up the top and specifically for the, the surveillance of um, of all the all the couriers there in the block and uh, and and yeah like there I, I kind of concocted uh, a painting called cognitive frontiers you know the cognitive meaning the the knowledge or, or of knowing and uh, I just instead of native I just put native and uh, I just sort of made a picture of that that whole scenario <laughs> and and to me like the notion of the frontier uh, uh, kind of resided um, you know. In, in a non-physical kind of way. And I was thinking more of, uh, you know, like all, all the blackfellas that was working, you know, within government agencies or organisations or, or operating, uh, 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 you know, according to, to rules or boundaries of institutions, but yet those rules and boundaries were kind of um, being adjusted or, or manipulated for our our needs, you know, or for our wants, I suppose. So, so yeah, I was thinking along those lines with uh, the cognitive type frontiers with all the, all the blackfellas that were in the public service, you know, um, and uh, uh, even though they're in there, you know, like it could be perceived, uh, you know, like the native police, the collaborators or the, uh, the old divide and conquer strategy being utilised, you know, um, yeah, which I suppose goes hand in hand once... Uh, you know, a, um, a colonial power comes to another country uh, as well. You know, like, like when we were talking just now about, uh, you know, the frontiers, it's quite interesting is that uh, a couple of years ago I moved to, uh, to Redcliffe and, uh, you know, I was there for probably, you know, a good uh, six to eight months and we'd go to a park and one of the parks we went to was uh, a settlement cove or settlement park and quite funny, you know, there was that, that plaque there, you know, in, in bronze and, you know, just playing around, having the kids running around and then realising this was where it actually all started. This is where the colonialism, this is where 
where you know the genocide, the attempted genocide of our people started at this spot because you know there's the plaque that says all the convicts, all the soldiers, the the name of the ship Amity in 1824 that came there. Uh, I mean, just down the road in Sandgate. Um, like I was just reading just the other. Well, I wasn't reading, but someone who was reading told me the story that um, <laughs> that uh, about one of the first landholders there, the first fellow that. Uh, that actually acquired land, that bought land, uh, met with uh, some severe resistance from the, the Ningi people or the blackfellas out there, and he, uh, um, you know, fled in a boat or, or something uh, with, uh, you know, a couple of nulla nulla wounds or spear wounds and stuff like that. But uh, as a result of that, uh, that was where the native police started. You know, um, that could have been the point where, where. Um, where the landholders had to protect, or they wanted protection from the government so that they can uh, have their way with the land that they want. So that's where the native police first started. And, and like the base for the native police uh, was in Sandgate. And like I go there to catch the train to come here. And it's in this, that same spot where the, uh, the police station is now, sort of thing, We're, you know, so, so that's quite a interesting, given that I'm trying to paint the history of Queensland, and I'm, I'm bang, slap, in the middle of where it all started, so that, that was quite mm. uh, intriguing, yeah. So I think with the work I've done for years, it's, it's I, my main aim has always been trying to tell the truth with looking at the truth in history, and not just get caught up with what people expect to be told, and, and sometimes there's contradictions, you know, there's, I, I look, 2013, I did an exhibition at Museum of Brisbane, Brisbane called Captured. And I put together about 170 photos, all studio photographs, all taken in the Brisbane CBD, three city streets in the 1860s and 1870s. And once, I'd sort of been working with these photos for 25 or more years, and to get them all together, and, you know, they, they, were, they were a powerful lot of images. And one of the, some people would look at these photos and, and feel uncomfortable with them and think, feel sorry for the people in the photos because they look so uncomfortable. But then you've got to understand the technology of the day. There was like 60 to 90 second exposure times. So that meant the sitters had to literally have their heads screwed in clamps. The photographers were brilliant at hiding, at hiding these, their, their techniques screw their people's heads in the clamps and they'd have to sit there really straight, no, completely expressionless. And they'd have these photos taken. So that understanding the technology really brings home to me that the people in these photos, photographs were willing participants. They walked into these studios. They agreed to have their heads screwed into a clamp and stay still for 60 to 90 seconds. And then the more I look at these photos, the more I work with these photos, once I got them all up into this space, I start thinking that these people actually at that time, I'm not saying all Aboriginal people throughout Australia were doing fine at the, at, in the 1860s and 1870s, but these people in Brisbane, I think they had quite a degree of agency over their lives. They were, I, I end up with this impression that they were, they were part of, the, part of the community. They could walk down Queen Street and probably say hello to the, the shopkeepers you know, know them and get called by their names. And, um, and I can imagine the photographer saying, right, you want to come in and get your photo taken? And they agreed. You know, we've got a photo of some of the main people, about 10 of the main people from, from Woodford area, from Durinda Station. 
They came to Brisbane and agreed to all get their photo taken in 1867 and all stood still. So, so the more I look at it, I think that these, at that time for these people, again, it's because they're in a pretty cosmopolitan place. They're with, they're, they're, there is a lot of people here compared to the rest of Queensland. And there was a degree of social conscience. Um, and as applies to other areas where there's native police shooting and killing people. So, so there's sort of different histories at different times in different places. So it's important to look at those histories. So, and that's why I love working with photos. And I just keep surmising what did the sitter go through? Why, what, what lives did these people live? And so for those people, I, I just feel strengthened that these people probably had reasonably good lives and, and, and had a, you know, they, they probably, I'm always sort of trying to give credit to these old people. I'm sure they knew that these photographers were at the beginning of this whole postcard industry and they were going to send these photos around the world and not license copy negatives to other photographers all through Europe. Some of these photos ended up in places like Peru and all types of places. And, and I think these old people knew that the photographers were going to profit, so I'm sure they would have negotiated some deal, some payment. I bet you they said, right, I want some tobacco or a new clay pipe or something before I pose. And yet, other photos I've worked with after the 1860s and 1870s, by the 1890s, 1910, you start seeing some really sad images. The 1860s, 1870s, there's, very, there's virtually no what I'd call sexual exploitation. There's a bit of nakedness, but the photographers aren't overly focusing on women's breasts or anything. Mostly everybody's genitals are covered. You know, somebody puts, strategically puts a hand or a boomerang or something to cover themselves. It's not the case by the 1890s, 1910. People are fully naked and people are starting to look really sad and it looks like the photographers have wanted to make these people look like victims, look like the last of their tribe and decrepit, to give this impression of how you know, horrible and decrepit Aboriginal society is. They weren't doing it in the 1860s, 1870s, they were doing it by the turn of the century. And then the other big exhibition I worked on with Vernon Archie in 2012 was the Tyndale, Transforming Tyndale at the State Library. And that's 1938. So here's me saying things may have been okay for these people in this place in the 1860s and 70s. For all these, I worked with, I worked with the photos of 1,100 people taken in the last six months of 1938. And these people, every one of them were locked up on reserves. Every one of them were under the control, full, their lives were fully under the control of the government. And in these photos, a lot of these people don't look happy. And they're forced to pose frontwards, pose sideways. They were having their hair samples taken, skin colour um, documented, um, measurements of their skulls taken. Women were getting asked for their entire life's menstrual cycle history. You know, very invasive stuff was happening. These people do not look happy about going through it and they did not have the opportunity, they did not have the agency to say no. So that's where I think, you know, that's 1938. So that's, to me, that's, these, that's like frontier stuff. These people were getting treated like, you know, not in a good way. So it's sort of, um, yeah. Yeah, like, um, like as a historian, um, you know, you're able to, uh, uh, because of, you know, your knowledge of, of what went on around that time, you're able to gauge that by looking at, um, you know those photos as well, and uh, 
you know, the story unfolds, I guess, um, you know, from the attitude of, of the photographer, the attitude at that t time. Um, but for me, you know, like, uh, I, I don't see myself as a historian. Um, Shubumba Motula, uh, the African artist that uh, is the stencil in a sense for what I'm doing here, he actually saw himself as, as, as a historian and an artist. And he had uh, like a set perception of what he wanted to do with the pictures he made of the brutal history of the Congo. Um, whereas uh, I don't sort of have that in a, in a sense you know, um, for a lot of reasons, I think, uh, um, well, being an artist, uh, um, you know, I, I, my art is, isn't really um, history. I, like, I don't do history paintings. Like, this here isn't a history painting. But what it is, um, it's, it's kind of about history. You know, like, um, the initial... This title as it is now, it's called Murrayland. That's the name of this painting. And that's the name of uh, the three other paintings that I will be doing, um, you know, uh, for this project that's gonna unfold next year. Um, and, uh, like, my approach is that, uh, that, that um, I guess I do take, you know, snippets of history, but I put my own twist to it. Like, like the initial title for this work was called uh, History, His Story, A Mystery, My Story, um, you know, History from a Blackfella Perspective, you know, from a Blackfella Perspective. So, you know, in doing this work, I, I guess I'm, I'm purporting not to represent anything, but actually just to be an example of, uh, of an artist that is making pictures, uh, um, you know, about history. So, uh, so I guess, yeah, what, what I do, I'm qualifying myself and, uh, um, and, you know, my take on things that people tell me and uh, what, what I see, uh, for example, I, I, I would not, even though, you know, Michael, uh, being a historian, like, that honesty is there. It has to be there, you know. But uh, for me, uh, as an artist, um, I don't let a bit of truth gets in the way of doing a good picture, you know, um, <laughs> even though um, I'm, I'm honest. Like, for example, um, there's a scenario there, and that scenario there was when um, Banks went ashore or something, and uh, he asked one of the Murrays up there, um, what's that jumping marsupial thing there? And, uh, you know, that the story goes that that black fellow was from another area and he said something like, I don't know. But for um, Banks's ears, it must have sounded like kangaroo. So the story, my story goes is that now over a hundred species get landed with this one name. But in talking to Michael, Michael hit me with a bit of truth and said that, oh yeah, yeah there, is, there is an area uh, up there near the river where kangaroo, that is just one species. Kangaroo is the name for that one species. Yeah, so, you know, like, but I'm not going to change the painting. Yeah, that was too good a story. <laughs> but, but the important thing is, is you're having fun. Yeah, well, that's yeah. it. Look, I mean, that's it. Yeah. Uh, well, you can see I'm having fun, I suppose. Uh, um, 
by using you know, a lot of bright colours. But uh, Michael said something interesting the other, other night when we were talking for two and a half hours about uh, what people learn or they get from, from pictures. And, uh, you know, quite... Um, I was surprised, actually, when you said that people actually learn a lot more from artists than they do from teachers or... or um, you even said mm. historians, didn't you? And, yeah. And theorists and stuff like that. And I was kind of, yeah, blown away that, that he would... But you would say that, yeah. yeah. I mean, even, even though I've worked in museums for a long time, and I love museums, and I call myself a museum person, I still think, in a sense, art galleries do a better job at hi teaching history because people learn when, when they're thinking and artists make people think. So that's, that's exactly what I think Gordon's doing here. He's, he's having fun, he's twisting the truth a bit, but he's making people think. So I think he will teach people a lot about history. Yes, yeah, so I'm doing something okay. Though. <laughs> 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 yeah, like it's all, or sometimes, you know, I think, you know, like uh, we're, we're kind of self-serving, but uh, in that, uh, you know, you know uh, we do a picture so that, that it looks good or, or everything must be right, even though, like, like for example, uh, behind me there's a Possession Island painting uh, as well. And, I mean, like, I've seen so many uh, drawings and, and pictures and paintings. Uh, I think just recently, uh, um, you know, Gordon Bennett's work from Possession Island uh, just got acquired by the Tate. Is that correct, Judy? Was it the Possession Island one? And uh, yeah, I've got a little picture of that where it shows, uh, you know, Captain Cook dipping his hat and, uh, you know, the, the, Syria, the scenario kind of unfolding in that, that style. And um, in a sense, I'm, you know, doing the same here. But uh, it's kind of like a pastiche of uh, popular culture and, uh, and history as well. Like when you look at the composition there, that's the, the same composition that... Um, from this well-known photograph that that was taken when um, a United States raised the flag on Iwo Jima, and um, yeah, one of the things I guess with and, and that's very much part of the history. But I'm taking that part of the history and juxtaposing it with uh, uh, you know the the, the claim of uh, of the East Coast when when Captain Cook did put the the flag into you know an island that is off. The mainland, and then claiming the east coast. So, so I'm kind of, uh, I guess, with the pictures, I'm trying to uh, sneak into the psyche of people from popular culture because there's a familiarity with a well-published photo, you know, that they'll look at it, but there's something there that'll tweak. So, you, you know, it's it's history. It's about history. But, um, you know, it, it's calling on uh, other ways of viewing it uh, as well. Like, you know, like, um, what am I talking about here? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I'm talking about, uh, uh, like, when, you, when I'm making pictures about history, I, I've got to, because a lot of people aren't privy to, to that history because not a lot of people like to read or understand. So I guess I'm trying to make it accessible you know, um, given that I, I've got this commission, uh, you know, to to do it and also to pick out, you know, the, the scenarios. The way that I started it was that I took over 200 years of colonisation and then tried to do a timeline of things 
that is relevant to uh, Aboriginal people. Um, and in that timeline, you know, I was just going to do pictures of those things. But, you know, like just starting, I mean, like, I might run out of time or, or space or stuff like that because, like, like this here, it's not necessarily chronological. I'm just kind of uh, uh, doing snippets of history that, that could formulate a good picture. So, so you can imagine, you know, the, the things that are going to be missed out in my um, making, you know, about, about history. Mm. So, like, that is kind of the nature of history, isn't it? Like, uh, that it's only written by, uh, by, you know, certain, certain peoples and it always comes from, you know, a certain terms of reference as well. And, yeah, I guess I'm putting my yeah. own terms of reference. So here's, you know, we've, I've been talking a lot about that, the frontier in the sense of the, um, the cattle barons taking, uh, taking land, but essentially everything in this painting so far, we haven't even got to that part of history yet. This is the discovery of Australia and all the, all the myths and craziness that people use today to look back on the discovery of Australia. There's some pretty... He's mixed a lot of concepts into this. this. Yeah, yeah, it's quite loaded. And uh, what's so funny is that often people will come and look at the painting and, and tell me something that I, do not in, that I didn't intend, you know, and uh, I come away learning something as well. Like, uh, I mean, the process a lot of artists do use is uh, metaphorical and, you know, they don't actually paint, the, you know, factually in a sense, but... Uh, with the metaphorical uh, uh, or suggestions, you know, it, it just opens so much more, and that must be part of that that learning that that could come when someone tells you about something because it evokes something in the knowledge that they have in relation to a particular um, incident or, or particular thing that happened, uh, you know, in history. Like, 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 I, I just call this painting kind of, uh, you know, the the creation time but also the tall ship time as well and, and like what's been excluded from this history so far which I intend to put right in the very next canvas you know was that um, that even before like this little scenario that unfolds here behind me in the circle that was um, when the Portuguese accidentally bumped into the continent of Australia and that was um, almost 200 years before Cook but a hundred years before Cook and a hundred years after the Portuguese, in this little scenario up there, um, in the peninsula, there, there's about 350 kilometres of coastline, and that's where the Dufkin, the Dutch uh, uh, ship under Jantz, Captain Jantz, mapped 350 kilometres of coastline there, and there's a little spot called Kiwi. Cape Kiwi. Kiwi, yeah, yeah. And then Dutch, that means turn back, turn around. And uh, what actually happened was, uh, a couple of their crewmen were speared, and so they fled. Now, really, see that little section there? In retrospect, after I'd done it, I'm thinking, that should have been a really big painting. That should start from the top down the bottom and go 10 metres that way or something, you know? But, uh, you know, the reason why I thought that, because that was the very first defence of uh, Aboriginal Australia against a European invader. You know, and to me that's so important, mm. you know, like, um, yeah, yeah, and, and like, yeah, yes, and, you know, some of these little ideas at first can become big ideas, 
but you know, given 100 years there, then another 200 years since Cook, you know, but even like I was just reading, just 500 years to 1,000 years even before, you know, the, the Portuguese, uh, you know, you, you've got the uh, 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 Indonesia and uh, the Macassans and all that uh, happening with the trade routes, but, but also um, I was told by uh, some people that was reading for me that, uh, that the Chinese, there was an emperor that, that, that um, you know, the civilization that they had there was so in advanced of the European civilization at the time that, that they traveled and mapped quite a lot of, uh, of, of, of the, the Pacific mm. and the Middle East. Was that the yeah. yeah, and when we were talking to Vivian the other week, she got a real shock to hear me say that I love seeing pictures of Captain Cook in artwork and, um, and I went to England and made the pilgrimage and went to Whitby because I wanted to see where Captain Cook came from and then Gordon says, I've been to Whitby too and Vivian nearly <laughs> fell off a chair knowing that we both had this interest in Captain Cook but I think, not saying we love him but it's, 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 the, it, it, it's the craziness of him, you know? The way he's represented, they keep, everybody keeps talking about him. People keep making him out to be a hero and um, so he's just such an icon. He's just such a big figure in Australian history. Yeah. And I think largely he doesn't deserve to be, but he is. So yeah. it's just, um, so that's why we both wanted to go see where he came from, you yeah. know, yeah. <laughs> to try and get some understanding of him and the place yeah. he came from. Yeah. That's quite funny. You were talking about uh, Uncle, old Uncle Arthur Peterson, always yeah. talking about Captain Cooks. He, was talk he calls all the white fellows Captain Cooks or something, don't they? Well, all the big, yeah. big-name people in history, this old fellow that both um, Gordon and I both knew well, he, old Arthur Peterson who came from the Gulf Country, Judy knew him, he, um, he, he, he just used the word Captain Cook in everyday language. So Captain Philip, Jesus Christ, Shaka Zulu, um, Captain Cook, um, the Queen of England, all the same person, it's all Captain Cook. And it sounds crazy, but when you actually spent time with him, he made it sound logical. You know, it was the bringer of a new tradition, and that's what Captain Cook was. He, you know, he signalled this beginning of a new Australia. Captain Philip turns up with the first fleet, so he's the same person as Captain Cook, you know? Yeah, yeah. Didn't um, Paddy Bedford, a traditional artist, done a, a painting in his traditional style? Not, not Paddy Bedford. Um, um, Paddy um, Paddy Fordham. Paddy Fordham. Yeah. Who's Paddy Bedford? He's another artist from the Kimberleys, I think, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kim, yeah, yeah, Kim, yeah. Kenny's painting was called Too yeah, Many Captain yeah, Cooks. Too Many Captain Cooks, yeah, was yeah. Paddy Fordham's painting, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's interesting even, yeah. you know, that, that he's still got that perception of all whitefellas being Captain Cook, which, which is quite interesting that, that alludes to um, yeah. uh, one of the artists in Sydney, Gordon Siren. I, I don't know if you know him, but all the whitefellas, um, he always refer to them as redcoats. You know, today, you know, like, oh, there's a lot of red coats. <laughs> so have we got any questions? We've got the mic. Someone's got the mic. Is anybody? So, yeah, please use the mic. Surely there must be a question by now. Thank you very much for that wonderful talk. Um, I think this, the imagery behind us is really quite stunningly beautiful and wonderfully coloured. I'm sort of interested in the concept of frontier as being more an intellectual space where, you know, it's, it's, it's in a way it's about the encounter and 
not so much a physical space, but the concept of a, the encounter between things of clashing differences, you know, that are not, and that can go on for a very long time, but it's also something that happens by both parties. It's not something that is so, like it's not a frontier, it's a frontier of each person's mind involved within that encounter. Would you like to comment on that? Well, yeah, like I said, you know, in one pure historian, historical point of view, you can, you can look at the frontier, but then you look at, you know, things like a policeman killing a person on Palm Island and then the investigating officer flies over and they have, have beers and a barbecue together and then he starts the, the investigation the next day. To me, that's like the frontier. That's the wild. That's that's the stuff that would have happened in Cloncurry in the 1920s. It's yeah, the stuff yeah. that would have happened around here in the 1850s. Well, you know? yeah, yeah. It, like, I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's st stuff still happening. Yeah, like, like yeah. speaking of Cloncurry, I mean, the frontier still resides there. I mean, the fact that uh, at the post office hotel, I mean, you've got a bar at the back where whitefellas drink, where the, where the cockies, the property owners drink, and the blackfellas will drink in the front bar at the post office hotel. I mean, I mean, which is cool. I mean, that's the way, um, you know, my uncles, we grew up, and, you know, it's still like that now. I mean, why would we want to go and drink at the back there anyway, yeah? And, um, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, to me, I mean, that, you know, that is, you know, frontier stuff, you know, when you think about it, but, uh, you know, also, you know, with a little bit of apartheid and, you know, that kind of scenario uh, as well. So, like, like Frontier, I think it just, like you said, I mean, it's, uh, it, it, it's just such an abstract notion uh, that it... Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, you go through the gallery here and you um, look at all the works and there is a thread of... Uh, uh, of um, frontier imaginaires going through all that, but that's the name of the show. No, I think it's the opposite. Uh, I think the whole, that's the whole point of the frontier the concept is that people aren't don't change. It's it's about arrogance. You only have a frontier where you have arrogance. You know the Queensland Police haven't stopped. You know they're going to keep killing people. You know the cockies are going to still keep drinking in that bar and not be friends with Aboriginal people. And that's why I compared, say, the early days. The timber cutters weren't arrogant. They were doing it tough themselves. These white timber cutters were doing it tough. They needed Aboriginal people to help them. But it was the arrogance of the, risto the rich aristocratic landowners. They were arrogant. They had resources. They didn't need to compromise. They, you know, that, that's... So I think the frontier represents arrogance and, non, and no compromising and no learning. I just think it's a loose term that could be used. Anyone can use it, uh, you know. Um, it's a frontier at the bar there, you know, if you um, want a drink and you've got no money and you have to pay, yeah. Uh, that could be seen, you know. There's a, a little bit of uh, arrogance, perhaps, you know, if I can use that word, that uh, <laughs> you have to pay if you want this beer, uh, yeah. Like, frontier is such a a loose term and uh, really for this show, Front of Your Imaginaires, any artist could have work in here and it'll fit the theme.
Um, there's something about the frontier though, that seems really almost like anachronistic, sort of a quaint notion that you associate with, you know, when you're talking about that 19th century context, those um, borders and barriers are so much clearer. But um, as you were saying, um, at least in, in these, you know, photographs that you were seeing, things appeared to get progressively worse, perhaps as that frontier, or at least the narrative of the frontier eroded a bit. And, you know, it's clear that the frontier still exists, but it's much more insidious. And I just wondered if you could comment on whether um, the frontier being insidious is better or worse all the same as the frontier being very clear and distinct, as in battles and massacres. Um, I, that's a hard question. Um, I, I think, I guess it's just a matter of that, you know, some people do okay in, in every situation and others do it tough. Um, so, um, you know, so it's not good for the people that are doing it tough. Um, and then I guess, I don't know, the other, the other complication is, is like, look at, the, look at the governments we get today, whether it be Liberal or Labor, you know, the difference is, as I sum it up, the Liberals basically tell everybody they can go and get stuffed and they're not going to be nice. And the Labor pretend they're going to be nice and aren't very nice, you know? It's this... So what's worse, you know? A, 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 an honest government that's a horrible but honest government or a horrible government that's pretending to be nice, you know? I hope I haven't offended people by talking Liberal and Labor here, but... You know, yes, I, I, know it's a hard, I don't know if I've answered your question, but it's yeah. just, it's sort of, it's, no, I can't say, like, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying anybody would, I don't know, who'd want to go and live back in 1860s Queensland, or who would, who wouldn't, you know, I can't answer that. Yeah, I think, like, like I said, that the whole term is just so, so loose, I mean, like, uh, but it's good to see, you know, that frontier when it's existed, you know, like, I remember when, um, you know, the, the regime of Pauline Hanson uh, uh, was apparent. Um, one uh, Murray fellow said, you know, that there was a rustle in the grass and the snakes put their head up, you know, and you could see, you know, the, 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 the unfolding of uh, attitudes that was not there before, you know, I mean, in a sense, you know, like, uh, I mean, if you, 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 if you've got an enemy, um, you have to see that enemy in order to engage with that, to, you know, put whatever scenario right or something like that, so. I heard a comment about, I think, what Pauline Hanson got about 16% of the vote, which was scary. And then, but someone summed it up to me. They said, if you go back to the 67 referendum, I think the figure was something like 91% of Australians said yes in favour of Aboriginal rights. But that means 9% said no. So the way this person summed it up to me was those, the 9% that had said no had children, and that adds up to 16%, and they're the ones who voted for Pauline Hanson. So, you know, in some ways, things don't change. The mic, please, yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to talk about some of the painting there. But I've just come back from places that I've described as frontier, like Nompen and, and 
Burma and places and in Dar Darwin, and that's because they weren't they were self-regulated rather than someone else imposing or the community imposing. In those places, you know, if you wanted to do something, you did it, and hoped no one else would stop you. And if they, now, if you just regulated yourself and fitted into the system, you you were fine. And that's what I think when I see people being refused entry into restaurants in Darwin, it's, it's, that's wrong in our mm. minds, but in their minds, because they're self-regulating and no one's going to stop them, that's their frontier is, is the regulation of the, of the system. Yeah. And I think I used the term right about a degree of social justice. Doesn't mean everything's just, it just, it's sort of trying to equate to what degree of social justice there were in various places at various times. Um, looking at the start of the painting and you've got the animals featured like the kangaroo and the fish and things like that, I see the frontier still, it's still really there for the animals. Um, my school, we get all these kangaroos on the over now, apparently because of the development North Lakes has blocked off and there's about 70 kangaroos that only have this small bit of reserve yet. And I walk up to my kill and foot stuff and, and, and there's kangaroo poo everywhere. We've never had kangaroos like that in the school grounds ever before. Mm. So the frontier is still there for the wildlife, mm. okay? And in, it, as you know, people turn a blind eye, as you said, some struggle and some do well. But I wonder how you are going to interpret what's happening to animals. You know, they say kang uh, koalas, um, you know, they're not going to last that much longer. Of course, they allow the development to put roads through and things like that. But yeah, more, less and less the wildlife is losing out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I guess the, when the habitat gets taken away, specifically, uh, you know, if you're talking about koalas, yeah, then they have nowhere to, to be. Uh, but I'm always, uh, always, you know, or have a little smile or chuckle whenever I'm uh, meandering through West End or, or other places where there's uh, little pockets of, um, of bush, you know, and I, I look there and I see um, rustling in, uh, you know, the grass or building their little man uh, mounds, you know, a little red, yellow, and black of the scrub turkey, and I always think that's kind of like, a, you know, metaphorical. You know, it's got our colours and and it's and it's there uh, stating its case, you know, even though there's cows there and, and you know it could be just a, a little bit of um, you know a scrub but but that um, a little uh, scrub turkey is there you know making his home and her, her home or, or whatever you know and and um, just going on and like to me that's that's quite metaphorical and when you mention uh, you know uh, kangaroos you know coming into the, the environment uh, well I mean as you all know, kangaroos, they're the ultimate uh, survivors, if anything. And uh, just a little bit of, well, they have the, um, you know, the, the, the biological makeup, you know, to conceive or give birth whenever they want. Um, like a female could be um, pregnant, but uh, the conditions aren't conducive uh, for a joey to come along. So that female could 
hold that pregnancy, you know, until the drought is over. But um, what had happened is all the property owners, they throw, they, they make a lot of dams, you know, on their, on their land, and of course there's water. So kangaroos are, are going to, you know, have, have lots of young, uh, lots of little joeys, and the next minute then you've got the property owners who are wanting to cull or, or get tags and stuff like that. So, so it's like um, when you impose something that's not meant to be there, then you know there 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 will be kind of ramifications, you know. Like, uh, but sometimes it takes such a long time for it to to happen. But yeah, I was just thinking about that. Yeah, your little story there. Um, I, I missed a bit of the talk earlier, so sorry if I've, um, you know, asking you to repeat something from that you've already talked about. But um, with the frontier, uh, something that uh, another artist who has their work at QUT as part of the exhibition, he discussed at um, a talk recently, um, the horizon, and I, I really like that connection between the frontier and the horizon, and um, it brought to mind a, a quote from a. Claire Denise film, she's a, a French colonial um, filmmaker from Cameroon in West Africa. And there's this part where um, they're talking about the horizon and, uh, and how the closer you move towards it, the, the further it moves away. And um, that's quite interesting in terms of the way that, the, for example, in colonial sort of ontologies or ways of knowing the way in which things exist, there seems to be this um, sense with the horizon that actually you can know what's, what's on that um, horizon. It's the frontier which you can kind of conquer and that the, the horizon doesn't actually move away, that you can know these things. For example, you can, you can know a place as being, well, that's a site to have a, a housing development. It's, but actually, if you engage with these, these um, phenomena and look at them closely, the more that they actually escape your grasp because it is, it is actually, for example, it's a kangaroo habitat and there's countless other things which it could be. And I wondered, is, it, is there something in the ways of knowing um, places and other phenomena um, that you connect um, with a work like this and sort of colonial ways of knowing places and, and peoples? And, um, uh, and what I'm getting at there maybe is a little bit like uh, at some, uh, at spending some time in the Northern Territory in a rem remote community. Um, I got a sense that sometimes a mountain wouldn't just be a mountain, it could also be uh, a snake or it could be, and lightning wouldn't just be lightning, it is lightning but it's also, it can be something else and things can be multiple and what we would consider to be contradictory. And I wonder if you have some sort of um, comment on that between the frontier and the horizon and that sense of how we know things and what we can actually know about them. I'll just, oh, oh, I'll just say something, probably all of I guess the main thing is, you know, history is important, understanding the landscape is important, understanding history is important, and there can be multiple truths. I think that's the main thing that, you, you know, and that's what maybe Gordon can talk about, that's what he's playing with here, he is, he's playing games with, there's multiple stories he's telling, yeah. it's not necessarily all the truths, what he's yeah. saying, yeah. 
So those multiple truths and understanding why there's multiple truths is important. Yeah. But, well, it's hard to, to talk about uh, uh, you know, work of art because there are those uh, multiple truths or, or the way that you said it, there's ways of knowing you know, with you being in the remote community and uh, just, you know, just the ways of knowing of, of the locals in that, that community, you know, like if, if you're up in the Territory, I mean, there's this big monolith there. I, I mean, what do you know that as? You know, there's Ayers Rock, uh, but then also there's uh, Uluru as well, you know, and Katkajuda, um, uh, the Olgas. So, you know, like there's all these different ways of knowing. There's like a colonial way of knowing. And uh, I guess I, I, I'm alluding to that, that here, um, you know, in, in segments of this work, which is, uh, uh, um, well, well, this work is called Murrayland, basically, because it's a history of Queensland um, and from a Murray perspective. Uh, but on another level, uh, I mean, that land there, you know, is, is known as Queensland, you know? Um, and that's a way of knowing, that's like a, a colonial way of knowing. Uh, I, I mean, the blackfellas in Queensland, we call ourselves Murray, so, I mean, when you put that there, and then you use, and you know, I appropriated, uh, you know, a Tyndale map that shows, uh, you know, an anthropological perception of, uh, of language and, uh, and you know, for want of a better word, uh, tribal groups. So, so, you know, like, it's about us, but a, a way of knowing uh, uh, about us. So I'm utilising these way of knowings, um, you know, to make a statement or, or, or just to, for people to perceive in whatever way that they want, you know. I mean, on another uh, level, uh, I mean, like, Queensland, you know, it's really inappropriate, you know, because Queensland is actually England. It's not this tract of land here, you know, in reality. But, so this just says it's Murray land. But, you know, another way of knowing is that someone said to me the other day uh, that the world is upside down. And, like, um, the concept and the notion there is, uh, is about that frontier uh, of um, map making which has to do, uh, uh, map making uh, has its genesis, uh, you know, with uh, war and wartime strategy, you know, whether it's, you know, marking in the sand or what, but uh, one of the major things that European nations had uh, with their map making was whenever they done a map or a strategy about attacking uh, the enemy, they always put themselves on top. So by putting themselves on top, uh, they have, uh, you know, the strategic edge. Um, did any of you see that Star Wars movie where, um, well, Obi-Wan, no, Darth Vader, I think, what was his name? Anakin was fighting uh, Obi-Wan or something like that, and they were fighting on the, on the lava lakes or something. And uh, Obi-Wan says, or oh, oh, yield because I have the high ground and you are, you know, on the low ground, so for, you know, a yield or something, and then, then uh, Darth Vader tries to do a somersault and get over top and then gets cut in half or something like that, you know, but uh, 
you know, so, so I just thought about, you know, having the high ground. So not only it's a physical high ground, but also a moral high ground and all that, which allows this nation, you know, from up north to come down in the middle of the ocean and uh, uh, try to take the lands of uh, all these other nations that that's below, you know, there was... Um, the notion of the earth being flat at one stage as well, but they will always put themselves at top and therefore they have a psychological and strategic advantage because they're coming down. Uh, and uh, at, at the top of Queensland we have Cape York. Yeah. And, and you I'm, know a song about Cape York. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know that song? Which, which is quite interesting, you know, like, because uh, remember I told you about uh, that the Dutch uh, on the one side of the peninsula and then on the other side, uh, Captain Cook goes up there and then and he, he names the peninsula after, you know, the, um, the Duke of York. Now, the, the Duke of York, um, in England, he was a military failure. He was hopeless. All the other military leaders would be laughing at him and stuff like that because he had so many uh, futile attempts at war and maybe lost lots of men. And there's that song, you know, the grand old Duke of York, he had 10,000 men. He marched them up to the top of the hill and he marched them down again. Do you want to sing the rest there of you go. When they were, up, they were, up, when they were down, they were down. Yeah, well, well, that song, you know, I mean, you, you, you know, you would have sung it to your kids or had it sung to you sort of thing, but, you know, he's this military failure and then Captain Cook names a fucking peninsula after him. <laughs> you know? Uh, so, yeah, yeah, it's kind of, um, I don't know. Well, yeah. that's the fun you can have with history. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, uh. Any other but yeah, questions? yeah, there's ways of knowing. I, I think that was an interesting thing you said. Sorry, I can't hear with that, the, the, the mic, yeah. Same when we were children, I lived in North Queensland, and when adults would say, I'm going to go and have a Captain Cook, means they were going to go and have a look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's interesting, yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, that, the, the little, little um, scenario there, because, see, you know, even though, you know, this is a history painting, you know, like, uh, uh, I mean, it's not chronological, and, uh, you know, I like to chuck in uh, snippets from other times as well. And there's going to be a scenario where maybe I've got three or four paintings and a blackfellow will come in and say, what about this? This is really important. So then, you know, I'll put it in the next one, even though it may not be in the, the time frame now. In this scenario that, uh, uh, about Captain Cook is, uh, as you can see, the... Uh, uh, the parliamentary scenario there with um, uh, Keith Windshuttle. Um, I'm symbolising him by, uh, by a shuttlecock um, and, and then a cloud. But uh, Andrew Bolt, he gets symbolised by a bolt um, with, with no nuts and the, there's, there's washers on the ground. But the, the scenario unfolds there where I'm, I'm trying to think of some kind of... Uh, um, verbalising that, that, that he would do from his attitude and you know in the time frame like when I, when I, when I do the scenarios like I, I put the dates and then maybe a little sentence over what happened you know um, and you know it's chalked in there 
but you know, I'll paint and then go and do the text afterwards. Um, well, in this scenario here, because I'm dealing with today or even into the future, you know, I might put, you know, um, what's this year? 17, 16. Well, what, 2016? Yeah, well, I might put 2017 or 2018. Um, and the scenario might go, you know, uh, a well-versed academic or, or, or someone in the know of black history, etc., makes a statement and then... I might just have him saying, like, you know, um, use ungrateful blacks. If it wasn't for Captain Cook, you'd be eating, eating your food raw. <laughs> you know, like, just silly little things, you know, because, you know, sometimes when you do a picture, when you do a painting, silliness and corn works, you know. Like, I, I was telling Michael that, that, like, when I first come down here, we were studying at the U of Q, and uh, we had... Um, our common room was on the sixth floor of uh, of this building, and we'd have our little happy hours there. And you know, there'll be engineers, architects, and lawyers, and we'd be sitting around, uh, yarning and laughing. And they'd tell their intellectual jokes, and, and I'd tell my joke, and they would roll their eyes up. <laughs> you know, and yeah, and they'd say something like, "Oh, you know, you make me weak," or something. You know. But, you know, the, the, the corn of a silly joke that I said, you make a picture of that. And those same, uh, you know, high sense of humour people would look at it and laugh and they'd smile. Yeah. Do you see any work in cartoons? Uh, look, uh, it's very much influenced by comics, cartoons, uh, Dr. Seuss. Um, um, like, I'm influenced by everything that happened within my life because uh, as an artist, I'm trained as a sculptor, uh, installation artist, uh, not as a painter. I only started painting because uh, I couldn't find a studio where I can sculpt when I finished art college, so I haven't had any really formal training with, uh, with my painting. I mean, like, I can remember, but I, I, you know, I just wanted to paint with oils. I can remember my first oil painting, which was quite large as well, but I didn't know you had to prime the canvas first. And um, I ended up spending my whole lab study on paint because the, the canvas wasn't prime, it just sucked up all the paint and linseed <laughs> oil and all that. So, so yeah, I didn't know anything about painting, so I had to gradually find my way, which probably um, could be a blessing in that... Uh, um, because I wasn't trained, I, I just paint my own way and uh, aesthetically it looks different to what most artists um, do. So, yeah that, could, yeah, that could be a blessing maybe that I wasn't trained. Yeah. If there aren't any more questions, let's just say thanks again to Michael and Gordon. Thank you. This is, this is good. It's nice and short, not like the other night. I think we just need another song from Gordon. No way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, thanks very much. There we go. Uh,